Welcome back to Curbside Consults, where we break down the practice-changing research from the New England Journal of Medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Amanda Fernandez, one of this year's editorial fellows at the NEJM. Recently, we published an article looking at the use of partial oral versus intravenous antibiotics in the treatment of endocarditis. Inspired by that paper, on today's episode, we will be looking at infective endocarditis. Infective endocarditis is rare, and it refers to an infection of a native or prosthetic heart valve the endocardial surface, or an indwelling cardiac device. It can either present acutely with sudden onset of fevers, sepsis, and systemic complications, but it is often difficult to tell from other causes of sepsis, or it can have a subacute presentation where a patient presents with nonspecific symptoms. In-hospital mortality of those diagnosed with infective endocarditis remains high at 20%. On this episode, we're going to review infective endocarditis and take a look at the microbiology, clinical signs and symptoms, discuss diagnosis, and then delve into the POET trial. We are excited to have Dr. Chambers, Professor of Medicine at the University of California, San Francisco, joining us for this episode. Welcome, Dr. Chambers. Pleasure to be here, Amanda. We're excited to have you. So we have a lot to cover, so let's uh, get right into it. To begin, there are a number of microorganisms that cause infective endocarditis. The causes and epidemiology of the disease has evolved in recent decades with really a doubling of patient age and an increase in prevalence of patients that have indwelling cardiac devices. Can you walk us through the microbiology of infective endocarditis? Sure. Microbiology has changed recently. Historically and classically, Bearden's group streptococci were the most common organisms isolated from patients who have endocarditis. But with advances in medicine, um, implantation of prosthetic valves, more procedures, hospitalization, uh, this has changed the spectrum of organisms in terms of their prevalence. It's the same players, more or less. It's just a shift, which is more common. So now, instead of streptococci, Staphylococcus aureus is the most common um, cause of endocarditis, somewhat reflecting acquisition in the hospital setting or exposure to healthcare systems. The um, underlying heart disease has also shifted a bit in the United States. In developing countries, rheumatic heart disease remains the most common predisposing condition uh, for endocarditis. But in the United States, rheumatic heart disease is quite rare relative to um, lower-income countries, and one sees patients who have degenerative valve disease, medical comorbidities, intravenous drug use, congenital heart disease, procedures, uh, and infection in older patients. So to basically kind of summarize what you said, the main player, the most common uh, microorganism that we should think about when we're thinking of infective endocarditis is really staphylococci, and this will become important later on when we talk about the paper. Yeah, I should add, just to round out the other organisms, streptococci are um, still not a distant second. A respectable proportion of cases is caused by streptococci. These can be Bearden's group streptococci or hemolytic streptococci. And then um, in third position, well, third or fourth, sometimes it switches depending on the series. There are enterococci, which is in the third position. And then the organisms called HASIC that I will not go through all of the species and genuses that make up HASIC, H-A-C-E-K, but these organisms are gram-negative cocci primarily that are oral flora, and they kind of mimic 
the predispositions in microbiology of viridin streptococci. And then there are a number of rare causes that I don't think we need to go into today. Okay, sure. So moving on from microbiology, when seeing patients in the emergency room or on the medical ward, uh, what are the main signs and symptoms that we should think about when we have infective endocarditis on our differential? The two common findings that are eventually present, if not present at presentation, are fever and a murmur. Almost everybody has uh, a fever who presents with endocarditis, or they have a history of fever. And this can be a bit of a pitfall because sometimes the patient will say, oh, I've had a fever, and the fever is not apparent at the time of the presentation. And that really shouldn't be ignored. Uh, that should be followed up on because they may not have a fever at the moment. It can be low-grade, particularly in the less virulent cases, such as with viridin streptococci. Cardiac murmur is eventually heard in the majority of cases, 85% or so, but may not be present on initial presentation, particularly in patients who have a sepsis-type syndrome. The other classical lesions that are associated with endocarditis, which are vascular, um, embolic, microembolic lesions like Osler nose, Janeway lesions, raw spots, are currently quite rare. Um, they're more commonly seen in more chronic cases and in viridin streptococcal cases. And of course, patients may present with uh, some of the advanced complications of endocarditis, such as heart failure or uh, embolic phenomena or strokes, metastatic infection, and it turns out they have an underlying endocarditis. None of these is really sensitive or specific for endocarditis. Um, it's a constellation of findings early on. There are defined criteria for making the diagnosis, but basically it's fever, which is otherwise unexplained and non-localizing unless there are metastatic foci of infection in most patients. Okay. I think this transitions well into my next question, which is going to be about diagnosis of infective endocarditis. I know that we get taught Duke criteria. Can you elaborate a little bit more on that for us? The Duke criteria were developed to as an epidemiologic tool, really, and they were in response to another set of criteria called the Von Ryan criteria that were really insensitive for right-sided endocarditis and essentially required that patients go to surgery or die before a definitive diagnosis of endocarditis could be made, so fairly insensitive for cases. And the Duke criteria were developed to establish an epidemiologic framework for studying this disease. Well, it turns out, even though it wasn't designed for this purpose, that the Duke criteria are pretty good at confirming or rejecting or the level of doubt about a diagnosis of endocarditis. There are clinical and imaging components as well as microbiology. They're divided into major and minor criteria. Uh, the major criteria are basically evidence of a new murmur or a positive echo finding, echocardiogram finding showing vegetation, and positive blood cultures with a usual suspect type of organism, high-grade bacteremia with virtually all blood cultures, not necessarily all, but virtually all blood cultures being positive. And so there are other lesser criteria as well, predisposing heart conditions, fever, those sorts of things. But when you uh, examine these and total them up into a constellation of major and minor criteria, they give you a diagnosis uh, that is definitive or possible or likely or allows you to reject the diagnosis. The 
cardinal feature, though, of endocarditis is a positive blood culture. Okay. Not everybody will have a positive blood culture. Depending on the series, about 10% of patients will not have a positive blood culture. That's usually for uh, a couple of reasons. If they have a bacterial or underlying infective endocarditis, about a third of the patients, because of the fever, get an antibiotic for the fever without an appropriate evaluation to exclude endocarditis. And if the organisms are fastidious or difficult to recover on culture or present in low counts, uh, you might not recover those in a blood culture either. And then there are mimics of bacterial endocarditis, which are non-bacterial thrombotic endocarditis, lupus anticoagulant, procoagulant syndromes, myxoma, tumors, those sorts of things. Uh, but those are not true bacterial or fungal endocarditis. Okay. For the imaging, I know the American and the European guidelines recommend a transthoracic echocardiogram, so a TTE, for all patients with infective endocarditis. When do you get a transesophageal echocardiogram versus a transthoracic, so a TEE versus a TTE? TTE, because it's non-invasive, the transthoracic modality, which over the years has improved sensitivity as computer signal to noise generation massaging allows you to amplify the signal and dampen the noise. And the probes are much more sensitive than they have been. So it's a pretty good technique, about 80% sensitive, some number like that. Because it's non-invasive and easily obtained, all patients can undergo that procedure. Uh, I think that's why it's recommended. The transesophageal, of course, is uh, more invasive. It requires intubation of the esophagus to position the transducer behind the heart and perform the echocardiogram from that position. Transesophageal echo, though, is more sensitive. So if you have a patient who has a very low suspicion of endocarditis, but you haven't really excluded it, you would get a transthoracic imaging. And if the patient turned out to have another source of the infection and you were pretty comfortable that they didn't have an underlying endocarditis, then you needn't proceed with the transesophageal. So the reason to go with the transesophageal is in the patient whom you are concerned for endocarditis, it's a more sensitive test. So if the suspicion persists and your transthoracic echo is not helpful or negative or maybe uh, equivocal, not definitive, then a transesophageal echo should be performed because of its greater sensitivity. There are certain patients in whom it is the preferred modality, uh, for example, prostatic valve endocarditis, probably pacemaker as well because you want that greater sensitivity. And then in patients who you know have endocarditis because you have a positive TTE, the transesophageal echo would be obtained to rule out complications such as valve ring abscess or if there are certain high-risk lesions seen on the transthoracic. Operationally, if a patient has a positive transthoracic echo, uh, unless there is some contraindication to performing a transesophageal, it's, it's generally done. Or, if, of course, the modality is not available, which I think it generally is in most places now. So to summarize, everybody transthoracic, uh, patients who have persistent suspicion of endocarditis diagnostically, you would get a TEE, or there are certain features clinically or of the transthoracic echo that would push you to do a TEE. So while the focus of this podcast is not on treatment specifics, could you briefly go over the general principles when thinking about treatment of infective endocarditis? Yes. Um, bactericidal antibiotics, that is more a conceptual framework than 
a hard call or a reality of an antibiotic. Many antibiotics will be more or less bactericidal, but fundamentally, because the valve is a protected site of infection, there is no effective host response present at the infected endovascular tissue. There are no white cells. Antibiotics are not effective. There's no cell-mediated immunity. So you have to rely on the antibiotic to kill the organism itself. Number two, high concentrations. It has to be able to penetrate this site of infection inside what could be a fairly large vegetation. And it has to work against slowly growing organisms, which means that the therapy has to be given over a protracted period of time. It was known empirically when penicillin first became developed, there were efforts to treat viridin strep endocarditis with a few days of and lower doses of penicillin, it didn't work. So empirically, it was determined that you needed high dose to assure good antibacterial and bactericidal drug levels and for a prolonged period of time to make sure that organisms that were slowly dividing would be killed. Okay. So I know that oftentimes when you look at these algorithms, they'll mention that patients need to be treated with antibiotics for about six weeks. So that's that protracted treatment you were talking about. Where does that number six weeks come from? Is that based on expert opinion, or is that evidence-based? I don't know how we wound up infectious diseases with, uh, you know, weeks, months, and, uh, you know, it's all five to seven, seven to ten days, uh, but empirically determined, basically. Okay. Patients were treated for various periods of time, was found out that that is what worked, six weeks. Now, there are some regimens that are effective over a shorter period of time. Uh, for example, adding an aminoglycoside to a beta-lactam can shorten the course of therapy, in some cases, of viridin strep to two weeks. There's some cost of toxicity from the aminoglycoside, but there's a range of two to six weeks. Uh, two weeks is pretty much the minimum. What you're trying to do is assure that there's no relapse, right? You want to have at the end of your therapy that you've gotten 95 to 99% of the uh, infection cured. Okay. Now, in terms of surgery, when should we be thinking about surgery? When is it indicated for infective endocarditis? The indication that is generally accepted and the least controversial is uh, heart failure that is not easily managed medically, and that often means an aortic valve infection. There are other indications such as a valve ring abscess or uh, sinus of valsalva abscesses that are paravalvular complications that require surgery because they are medically not curable. And then there are patients who may continue to throw septic emboli, and you would remove the vegetation to terminate those, and persistent bacteremia, that is, people who are not responsive to medical therapy. Those are softer indications. I should add that often there's reluctance to operate on patients who have a positive blood culture, but that should not dissuade you if the other indications are there because... Once the infected valve is removed, most patients uh, will do fine with the prosthetic valve and not relapse with their original organism, which occurs, oh, on the order of 10% of the time. So with this background on infective endocarditis, let's move on to the recently published article in our journal by Iverson and colleagues, the partial oral versus intravenous antibiotic treatment of infective endocarditis or the POET trial. Dr. Chambers, why is this trial important, and was this studied before? So I think it has general and specific importance and applicability. So the study asked the question, 
is it possible to use an oral regimen to step down patients so that they don't have to have a prolonged course of IV antibiotics and still achieve a satisfactory cure rate? The reason why it's generally interesting is this is the final frontier. If you can cure endocarditis with oral antibiotics, that is a tall order, right? Because you have to have drugs that absorb, that produce high blood levels, that penetrate into the vegetation, and that kill organisms on their own. So I think this shows that, well, you know, you kind of say, if you can do this with endocarditis, can I do this with less serious infections? And that's its appeal to me. Was it studied before? There have been observational studies that have been done. There are several smaller ones. There's a large one by, I think it's Mazabi uh, and colleagues, M-Z-A-B-I, that was a single center study, I believe in France, that reported on retrospective case series of patients who were treated orally. Very similar in concept to the POET trial, but not a randomized controlled trial. Perfect. So the POET trial, as you alluded to, is a randomized prospective trial that looked to answer this question of intravenous versus oral antibiotics. And in terms of design, it was a multi-center, open-label, non-inferiority trial that was conducted across cardiac centers in Denmark. Basically, these were patients that were referred to these referral centers with suspected infective endocarditis between 2011 to 2017. Can we just go over the characteristics of the patients that were studied in this trial? Yes. Number one, it's a referral population. I think that's important to remember. These physicians are experienced with caring for patients who have endocarditis. Number two, it's in Denmark. Denmark has a low prevalence of drug-resistant organisms. It is also a highly integrated healthcare system. The patients that they enrolled were around 400. I believe it was exactly 400. They screened over 2,000 patients to get to that number. So this isn't for everybody. This is about 20% of the patients they saw they felt were appropriate. They were older patients, 68, mostly male. That reflects the current microbiology in high-income countries. The typical organisms were those that cause endocarditis. They're all gram-positives, efficalis, so there's no ephesium, staph aureus, coag-negative staph, and streptococci, both Reardon's group and hemolytic. Streptococci, in contrast to all comers with endocarditis, was the most common organism. Second was enterococcus, and uh, third was staph aureus. All of those were methicillin-susceptible staph aureus. There was no MRSA, and of the methicillin-susceptible staph aureus, an appreciable proportion were also penicillin-susceptible. Um, so not necessarily reflective of the microbiology that we see in the United States. Right. And just to remind our listeners, that's staphylococci, which is the most common, which this did not have. Correct. They had staphylococci, but it was the third in position. Um, they also did not have a lot of coagulase negative staph. Just keep that in mind. So fundamentally, this is a paper on virided streptococci or other hemolytic streptococci, if you want to look at the bulk of microbiology that drove the results. Okay. And then in terms of trial design, can we discuss that briefly as well? It was open label, so that is always a concern for uh, bias. They de-risked that by having an adjudication committee that made a final determination. The study is also aided by the fact that it had hard microbiologic outcomes, uh, relapse, mortality, unanticipated surgery, uh, other events, strokes, 
that were counted as failures. So I think that, again, de-risked it being open label. There wasn't a lot of crossover. So the regimens that the people were randomized to, they stayed on. I think there were four patients who were assigned oral therapy and they got switched to IV. So the oral patients really were oral patients and the IV were IV patients, except for those four that I mentioned. It's a non-inferiority trial, so the margin they chose was 10%, which is based upon their outcome variables and what they anticipated it would be. Got it. Okay. So when these patients were initially screened into the study, they received at least 10 days of IV antibiotics. And after at least receiving 10 days, they then were randomized into two treatment groups, either the oral antibiotic at that point and then the IV treatment. Why did they choose 10 days of IV antibiotics before they switched them either to oral versus IV antibiotics? I think a couple of reasons. One is uh, everyone would agree that stopping at 10 days is probably not a good idea, and so there was a need for additional therapy. But at the same time, puts the patient well on their way to a successful microbiologic outcome. The complications that occur with endocarditis are more likely to occur early during the clinical course. I should note, though, that when patients were randomized was 17 days, not the 10 days. So you had to get at least 10 days, and you had to get at least seven days after surgery. There was no upper limit of when the patient could be switched that was disqualifying, but on average, patients were treated for a couple of weeks, maybe a couple of days longer, up to three weeks at the outer range, and then received a total of about six weeks of therapy, half of it being oral if they were on the oral regimen and the rest of it being IV if they were on the IV regimen. So just to really highlight what you said there, these patients were stable at the time of randomization to either treatment group. Yes, they had uh, a number of criteria. And that's why when you look through what patients were not included, that you find that only 20% were eligible. Some of them weren't eligible because they turned out not to have endocarditis, but some of them still had inflammatory markers or a bunch of other other criteria that they had pre-specified that would uh, make them disqualified for the study. Okay. The antibiotic regimens that they use, I'm just going to list them here. They were dicloxacillin and rifampicin, or amoxicillin and moxifloxacin, or amoxicillin and rifampicin, or amoxicillin and linazolid. Are these antibiotics that we typically use for the treatment of infective endocarditis? These are the oral regimens, not the intravenous. Generally not, or yes and no. Interestingly, the regimens that they pre-specified were not the ones that turned out to be the most commonly used in certain circumstances. But as I said, this is fundamentally a study of streptococcal endocarditis. And by far, the most commonly used drug was amoxicillin. And it was amoxicillin in combination with rifampin or amoxicillin in combination with moxifloxacin. The second-line regimens were linazolid-based with rifampin or moxy, some with amoxicillin. But so a heavy reliance on amoxicillin, linazolid as a backup. For staph aureus, the most common regimens were dicloxacillin and rifampin. And next most common, almost as common, was amoxicillin and rifampin. The reason why a combination of drugs, and I think they've defended this well, is they wanted to make sure that at least one of the two drugs in the regimen were therapeutic over the dosing range. So they de-risked the problem of if I gave the patient amoxicillin, well, what if they didn't absorb it or miss some doses? Wouldn't that be something you'd want to avoid? So they said yes, and they used a second drug 
that would be expected to have activity. So of the two, at least one of them was present and active at uh, serum concentrations that you would expect to be effective. Okay. The primary outcome of the study was a composite of all-cause mortality uh, and then unplanned cardiac surgery, embolic events, or relapse of bacteremia with the primary pathogen from the time of randomization until six months after antibiotic treatment was completed. What did the authors find? Uh, They found that their composite outcome, and by the way, it wasn't powered for the individual outcomes, but there was about a 3% difference that slightly favored the better outcome with the oral regimen. It wasn't statistically significantly better, but it was no more than 4% worse than the IV regimen, and it might be 10% better. So they met their endpoint. They demonstrated a non-inferiority in these selected patients in a high-quality randomized controlled trial. Okay. Very interesting. Is this finding practice changing? Potentially. uh, You know, kids do not try this at home. I think you want to be comfortable in dealing with patients with endocarditis. Remember, this was the referral center in Denmark, uh, and the investigators were all experienced individuals who are used to treating endocarditis. I think it could be uh, implemented as part of a consultative practice and evaluation. The follow-up was fairly intensive, a couple, three times a week over the period of the study and then various time points after. So I think the implementation would have to be carefully thought about. I wouldn't think that in a primary care practice, unless that practice focused on dealing with patients like this, that you would blithely move to uh, a regimen like this without support and backup. Okay. So get your infectious disease doctor on board. Yes. Got it. Okay. I'm just going to briefly summarize what we talked about. So infective endocarditis is a rare infection of a native or prosthetic heart valve, the endocardial surface, or an indwelling cardiac device most commonly caused by staphylococcal species. When should you think about infective endocarditis? You should really think about it when you have a patient with a fever and a cardiac murmur. The incidence of infective endocarditis is increasing with the use of increasing cardiac devices. Diagnosis is based on Duke criteria or a positive blood culture based on your clinical case. Oftentimes for treatment, patients have a prolonged hospital course while they receive antibiotic treatment for a protracted amount of time. And that's where the current trial, the POET trial, comes in. It is the largest trial to date which asks the question, in patients with left-sided endocarditis, can we switch patients from intravenous to oral antibiotics after they've been stabilized on intravenous antibiotics? The study found that partial oral antibiotic treatment after stabilization and clinical response to intravenous treatment was non-inferior to treatment with only intravenous antibiotics. However, as Dr. Chambers alluded to, given the highly selective population used in this study, the generalizability may be limited. Dr. Chambers, do you have anything else to add to this? Oh, there's a lot more we could talk about, but I don't think we have time today. So uh, this has been a great summary and a very instructive clinical trial. Thank you very much, Dr. Chambers, for joining us in conversation on infective endocarditis. I hope we've given our listeners a bit more insight into both aspects of clinical practice and a point of access to the primary literature that makes up the NEJM. Please visit our cardiology guide for information on infective endocarditis at resident360.nejm.org. I want to thank our expert today, Dr. Chambers, our production team here at NEJM Resident 360, Karen Buckley, Kyle Simmons, Mike Tomasis, Tim Vining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to my co-editorial fellows, Dr. Angela Castellanos and Dr. Angela Chen, and our NEJM education editor, Dr. Opie Hammondvik. 
Because this is a new series and we're trying something new, we want your feedback. Please email us at resident360 at nejm.org or feel free to reach out to us via NEJM Resident 360 website. I'm Amanda Fernandez, Editorial Fellow at the NEJM. Please join us again for our next episode.